The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 5, and we're going to be reading beginning with verse 12. Acts 5, verse 12 through verse 32. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is God's word. A lot, a big chunk of text here. And I'm really going to focus on these last verses, verses 30 and 31, but we'll, we'll cover this text as well. Um, but 
Boy, what, what you noticed is, remember they prayed for boldness earlier? God has given them boldness. And it makes me, I can't help but go through the book of Acts and think, this is beautiful, this is what the church is meant to be, this is genuine Christianity, I want this. I want this kind of boldness. Let's pray for boldness. Because this is who we should be. People who rightly know God because they know the one he's exalted. So, we want to be like this. To be this kind of witness for Jesus. To have this kind of fearless confidence in God. And again, there's nothing new that we have in the 21st century. God's word is powerful. Prayer is a wonderful gift that connects us to God. The church is God's idea and a great blessing for us to to grow and be encouraged in the faith. And the Holy Spirit helps us in all of these gifts. Nothing new. We have what they have. When we read this account of the early church, this is what we see. We see We see an excitement, we see a hunger, a boldness, because the gospel is is really clear to them. And they know what God has called them to do. So maybe our issue is we forget what God has called us to do. there's There's a conflict going on. There's persecution. There's there's a really obvious trial. It's a test for them to either cave in or trust God. And a decade or so later, James wrote something that connects you, that connects Christians of all ages. He wrote, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I love this passage. Our men's group read it this last Wednesday. We're we're going through the book of James. So, men, if you want to go through the book of James James, uh, Wednesday noon, uh, check that out. So I read this and think, you know, our particular trial. Our suffering, it's not like theirs. It's not like the early church was going through. But it works the same way, doesn't it? When they were threatened, should they trust God or not? It's a test of faith. And they remain faithful. It's a test. And remaining faithful to Jesus makes you more bold. It makes you joyful. Count it all joy. If you're going through loss or loneliness, if it feels like you're losing what's important to you, it's a test of faith. Is God working all things for your good, you ask? Will he give us a hundred times what we've lost with eternal life? Is he preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison? Believing God's word leads to a 
a peace that surpasses understanding. It leads to rejoicing in the hope of glory. It enables us to endure in suffering, any suffering. And this produces character and assures hope. And this hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts and the Holy Spirit has been given to us. This is where we go. These are the kinds of trials that we face. Our faith is the same as theirs. Yes, they were, they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. And their witness grew. Their witness grew as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And God's word became clear through the apostles' teachings. Think about where we are. We benefit by this. We benefit from this because the apostles' teachings were written down, written down for us, bound into leather books in our own language. We have much greater access to the complete word of God. We have an advantage over them, really. We share the same spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And the point I'm trying to make is you can be bold. We can be bold. Our faith is the same. We have the same spirit. And if anything, we're at that advantage of having the complete word of God. If you're a Christian, then your witness begins with and always comes back to Jesus. That's what we see in our text. You can't deny who he is and what he's done. They couldn't deny the truth because they saw him. They witnessed him. He is the truth. So if we're to compare and learn from the early church, what we see repeated throughout these first five chapters of Acts is Peter again and again and again declaring what? The gospel. This is is his fourth sermon. And I don't even know if I'd call it a sermon. It's a great summary of the gospel. We need to know the gospel. This is what the enemy wants us to be ashamed of. To think of it as powerless, irrelevant, too small for our modern problems and concerns. But it's our witness. It's our witness, handed down from the apostles, received by the Holy Spirit, Spirit, having to do with an eternal plan before the foundations of the world. There's nothing bigger, nothing more important, nothing else that will lead to any lasting peace. It's a message that changes us. As you read your New Testaments, you'll see that it's the central truth that everything else revolves around. It's the power of God to save. It's the most loving truth that we can know, that we can share. So we must know the gospel. We must know the gospel. And what it's not, it's not you being nice. (laughs) Be nice. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not you being nice. It's not 
something communicated through your acts of kindness. Be kind, do good works, but that's not the gospel. No, the gospel is a specific message. It's God's news that we know and share. And verses 30 through 31, Peter gives us this concise gospel statement. And I want to point out five truths from that. But what leads up to this statement, there's some context. So let's go through uh, these verses. An account, it begins with an account of many signs. Signs and wonders. And God has reasons for this particular season of miracles in the early church. In verse 12, Luke describes these miracles. He calls them wonders. Signs and wonders. But wonders are miracles. Miracles are intended to get people's attention and cause them to think, wow, this is something unusual going on here. I don't see this very often. Something is happening here in my day. So if we really understand what a miracle is, we shouldn't expect one, right? We shouldn't be telling people, expect a miracle. Because if we expected them, there'd be no awe and wonder. We'd get used to them. They wouldn't be wonders. They'd be common. But miracles are meant to create a response. And that sense of wonder, this sense of wonder, what is it? It's a sense of the presence of God. The presence and power of God. That's the sense that we get. That's the wonder that we get when we are confronted with a miracle. And that's what's going on here. Think about even today, a physical healing. What does a physical healing do that, it, that is just clearly something that causes a doctor to scratch his head in wonder? There's no scientific explanation. It leaves them with a one-word explanation, God. God is present in this. There's no other explanation. And in verse 15, we get a sense that great crowds are they're gathering. Word is getting out. Something unusual is happening here. Word is getting out. And here's something wonderful just to note also. At the beginning of Acts, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he told his disciples this. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we go through the book of Acts, that's the pattern. It begins in Jerusalem. It goes on to Judea and Samaria. It expands and expands to the ends of the earth. Their witness begins in Jerusalem. That's where these first five chapters have taken place. And then it's supposed to spread. And where are these crowds coming from that we see with these signs and wonders? They're coming from the towns outside, outside Jerusalem, around the city of Jerusalem. They're coming from Judea. We're seeing what Jesus said would happen. We're seeing the expanding of their witness to Judea and Samaria and eventually to the whole world. 
People are they're carrying their sick to be near this wonder of miracles, this presence of God through the hand of Peter. And we read that they're, they're thinking crazy things like, you know, even if his shadow falls on me, I will be healed. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Remember, even though Jesus is ascended, you know, we, we see his presence all throughout the book of Acts. Peter said that it was Jesus who healed the man who was born lame. And now this, this, this is just like the woman who thought, you know, even if I touch his robe, it's the same, Jesus is there. Miracles give people a sense of God's presence. And in verse 15, Luke uses, he uses this word fall. If Peter's shadow might fall on us, fall. It's the same Greek word used to describe the angel Gabriel who told Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's the same word used at the Mount of Transfiguration when the Father said, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Luke says that the voice of God came out of a cloud that overshadowed them that fell on them. It wasn't the power of Peter that healed. It was the overshadowing presence of God. These miracles are wonders of God. And they're also described with another word, signs. Signs and wonders. They're described as signs. What do signs do? Well, they point to something beyond themselves. Grant's Pass is not a sign on I-5 that says Grant's Pass. A sign points to, it communicates a greater reality. The bread and the cup that we just partook of aren't salvation. They point to salvation in the sacrifice of Jesus. Baptism itself doesn't wash away your sins. It's a sign that points to the reality of the new covenant and the promise of God to wash away your sins because of Jesus. So these apostolic wonders were not only a prophetic sign saying that, listen to these men, just like any prophet throughout all of Scripture, having the authority of God, and not only communicated that, it also pointed to the reality, a greater reality of the healings that were taking place, of God's promised day, a promised day brought about by the stripes on Jesus' back, that by them we are healed, that a day of redemption is coming when God will restore this fallen world, rid it of all the effects of the fall. A time when all will be well. She'll long for that. That's what these signs of miraculous healings are pointing us to. 
these kinds of signs, they don't happen today because the witness of the apostles in the early church had to do with what we now read in our New Testaments. The authority was given to them for this. And we're blessed with the authority of the complete word of God. But after the signs and wonders, we read in verse 17 about jealousy and prison. And it's all consistent with Jesus again, isn't it? Just see a repeat of Jesus as we go through Acts. They're jealous of Jesus. They thought, he's not a real rabbi. He didn't go to our schools. He's, he's an uneducated carpenter from Galilee. And look at the people flocking to him. What are they thinking? And now with these apostles, it's the same thing. They're not educated. We thought we rid ourselves of Jesus, but they're just like him. They're doing miracles and preaching, and people are flocking to them. Ah! Ah! The nerve! We're the leaders. And this is the scene from verses 19 to 26. It's... This next thing, it's really kind of funny when you read this. An angel of God comes during the night, lets the apostles out of prison, and being a, a good angel, he locks the door behind him. And in the meantime, the next morning we're given the scene of the of the high priests and all of these these important leaders coming, you know, robed, you know, in their official garb and, and just impressed with themselves, dressed to impress or to intimidate and show this their power. There's this rumble of conversation, no oh, the indignations and then they're ready for these nobodies to be brought before them. Send for the prisoners. A little while goes by and they're just they're mingling, talking looking at their watches. Uh, what's going on here? We're important men here. I mean, a little service, a little service. Come on, bring the prisoners here. And then finally, a, a nervous official comes on the scene. It's a, um, sir? Uh, well, I mean, they were there. Uh, the gates were locked and nobody was inside. And before they can say, it's a prison break. A fugitive's on the loose. Get the dogs. Before they can say anything, someone else comes along and says, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And if these guys wore hats, you can imagine the grand poobah hitting them and saying, well, go get them. So here's the question. Why aren't they on the run? Why did they go back to the place where they'd be re-arrested? Answer, the gospel is more important than their safety. Just like Jesus were to count it all joy. They knew what would happen. They knew they'd be right back to the temple And, and they did um, exactly what 
the angel told them to do. They knew because Jesus changes everything. His message is more important to them than avoiding a beating or imprisonment or torture or execution. And it wasn't just the early church who had this kind of attitude. It's the martyrs throughout church history. It's brothers and sisters today who are willing to die for their faith rather than be quiet. And if we ever face such persecution, I pray that God would give us great grace to prioritize the gospel as well. Like these, we should know that we are to submit to governing authorities because God is the one who is in ultimate authority and put them in place. But we've already thought about the fact that if we ever disobey, it must be for the sake of obeying. If we ever disobey them, it's for the sake of obeying our higher authority who is God. We are not rebels. We don't disobey for our own sakes. We disobey for the sake of obedience. We see this disobedience all throughout Scripture. In Moses' day, as the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh, with Daniel, as he opened his windows in public prayer, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And here, the apostles, they must disobey. They must disobey the orders of the high priest. For to obey would be disobedience to Jesus, who through his angels just told them, go stand in the temple and preach. Preach the gospel. Preach the words of life. One way or another, they must disobey. Better to disobey men than God. And in telling the high priest and the council, once again, Peter gives them this very message that they, they don't want to hear. It's the message that we must know. So let's look at Peter's summary of the gospel in verses 30 and 31. Five important points that we see. First of all, it seems pretty obvious, Peter's obsessed with Jesus, isn't he? It's how he began his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. It's what he said to the lame man before healing him. I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's the opening sentence of his sermon in chapter 3. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. And in chapter 4, he explains how the lame man was healed, saying, it's in the name of, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. His life and message, it's always about Jesus. I forget who, I remember Pastor Dale describing someone, I don't know if a friend or a relative, but, but he described this person as not being able to have a conversation with someone without bringing up Jesus. Isn't that great? Wouldn't it be great to have that said of us? 
Are we praying for boldness? For opportunities to share Jesus? Are we creatively looking for ways to make a passing comment that highlights our love for Jesus and how great of a leader or savior and savior that he is? And it shouldn't be hard this time of year. Let's not forget that Christmas is it's about Jesus. Yes, the season is about many things. It's about the enjoyment of family and friends and children and the joy of giving and good food and fun and traditions. I love them all. But oh, how strange would it be for us to make this celebration about anything other than Jesus. That's one of the reasons. I don't know if we still have those lawn signs that we made up. That's why we made them. Grab one if there's some still there. Put them out. Pray that God will give you opportunities to talk about Jesus. It'd be great if we had this reputation of Peter that people said we were obsessed with him. Obsessed with Jesus. And if we're to be obsessed with him, then pay attention to what Peter says next. Second, he says that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. When Peter says in verse 30, the God of our fathers, who's he talking to? He's talking to these Jewish leaders. The God of our fathers has done this. He's saying, you of all people should know this. If you knew your own fathers, you take great pride in Abraham and Moses. But if you really understood them, you should know that God raises up leaders. And all of them, all of these leaders throughout your scriptures that you admire and say that you know, they all point to this ultimate leader and savior who is Jesus. He's not just a man. He's the one that God raised up. We need to know that the gospel message doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins with God the Father. And this is the point of our Christmas Eve service. This is what I love about our Christmas Eve service. We tell the, the history, the God's plan of redemption. Telling the story of redemption that begins really before creation. But then Adam and Eve... And God's promise to raise up a deliverer. To raise up one who would come from the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, Jesus. God would raise him up. And it continues with Moses prophesying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses uses the words, Raise up. And this is what's being said in Acts 5. God has done it. He has raised up a prophet like Moses. It's Jesus. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. And you didn't listen to him. And not only did you not listen to him, but you killed him. All of the Old Testament prophecies 
point to Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us that a man of sorrows would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, stricken for the sins of his own people. All of the ceremonies, all of the sacrifices point to Jesus. God will raise up the sin bearer, the deliverer. God raises up kings and prophets, and they all taught about the king who was to come. This is why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. All of the Old Testament has to do with God raising up this leader, this Savior. And we read that when the fullness of time was come, this baby was born in Bethlehem. And what name did they give this baby? She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Peter and the apostles say, this is the one. This is the one whom God, the God of your fathers, has raised up. This is the focal point of God's plan for the salvation of humanity. Third. The gospel message emphasizes the death and resurrection of Jesus. His death communicates the guilt of man. John tells us that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And these rulers complained that the apostles teaching that they were, what did they say? You're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. But had they so quickly forgotten, it had only been weeks. It had only been weeks when, when Pilate had that dramatic scene. Remember, he's washing his hands, in essence, saying, it's on you, not me. And what was their reply? His blood be on us and on our children. They actually said this. And the fact is, the guilt belongs to all of us, Right? The guilt belongs to all of us because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's guilty. We killed him. And this is the point of all of the Old Testament sacrifices. A substitute for the death penalty we all deserve. The wages of sin is death. But God in his mercy raised up Jesus to take our place. The Jews understood that something else said here. The Jews understood that only the worst of the worst would be hung from a tree. That this communicated the very curse of God. And by his death on a cross, on a tree, Christ became that curse for us. Here's how Paul understood it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The gospel message emphasizes Christ's death, pain, what we deserve. His resurrection, which vindicates his righteousness and guarantees that all who have faith in him have likewise been brought from death to life. A fourth emphasis in the gospel is that God has exalted Christ as leader. He is our leader. 
Another term we might use is trailblazer. One that goes before us and opens a way. Christ not only leads the way, but he makes the way. This word leader, some translations use the word prince. God has exalted Jesus as the prince, as the ruler of this world, the ruler of all things. And concerning his exaltation, we read that God will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus is the one God raised. Raised to this role and raised literally from the dead, exalting him to his right hand, the position of all power and authority. He is the prince. He is our leader. And so we remember that for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, Leader of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Yes, this is what we want. This is what we look forward to. This is who we celebrate this Christmas season. What a promise. What a promise. What a certain hope is ours. There will never be peace, right? There will never be peace with any human king or president. No human ruler will ever give us what they promise us. Don't put your hope in any of these. There will never be peace with any of them. They're flawed. They're corrupted with sin. Only the Prince of Peace will do. And he has made a way. He will surely bring us home. Lastly, our Prince of Peace is also our exalted Savior. In order to be saved, people must recognize their guilt that they've sinned against God, they deserve His just judgment. And something that we continually hear as we've gone through this book of Acts in Peter's sermons, he keeps using the word repent. He keeps talking about repentance. People need, and what this means, people need to acknowledge their sin. They need to turn from it. Repent means a change of attitude and direction. It means that we're sorry. We're sorry for our sin. We don't want to keep walking in that direction. It means we, we turn from our sin. We apologize to God. We turn to Christ in faith and walk with Him. We can't be forgiven unless we repent. But there's a real problem with this. Left to ourselves, people don't want to repent. In fact, they can't. It's like telling a dead person, live. There's an illustration of salvation that you've probably heard. 
It says that a sinner is like a person drowning in the middle of an ocean. And they're going down for the last time. But there's a Savior, Jesus, who throws you a life preserver. It's the offer of salvation. And all you need to do is reach out and take it and he'll pull you in. Here's the problem with that illustration. We can't repent. We can't reach out for that life preserver. We're dead. We're slaves. It's how scripture describes us spiritually. We need we need a savior. Saviors save. We need the one who will give us what we can't do in ourselves. The one who will change the attitude of our hearts. That's what verse 31 says. A savior to give what? To give repentance. Or as Acts 11 says, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance. Jesus gives repentance. Or as 2 Timothy 2 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. God is sovereign over your repentance. People don't repent without it. God grants repentance. Jesus isn't some, someone that you cooperate with. He's God's exalted Savior. And a Savior is not a lifeguard who offers help. No, he's, he's the one who raised up, the one who's raised up and exalted by the Father. He's the one given all authority. A Savior grants repentance. He's the giver of life. So instead of an illustration of a life preserver, you know, Jesus actually gives us a, a great illustration. It goes like this. Lazarus, come out. He makes the dead live. He's the leader and savior who gives repentance and forgiveness. So don't despair over your unbelieving friend, thinking it's just not like him to ever admit that he's wrong. Left to himself, he won't, he can't. But here are some positive things to consider. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the ruler of all things. He is sovereign to grant repentance and faith. And you know him. You know him. And he wants you to do what? Cast your cares upon him. Don't, don't underestimate that your unbelieving friend, don't underestimate that your unbelieving friend has you. Someone with access to the throne room of God. Praying that he might grant repentance as you or someone shares the good news. During this Christmas season, let's be like Peter. Let's be obsessed with Jesus. Reading God's word, seeing that Jesus has been raised up as Savior and Prince of Peace. 
Let's pray. Father, we praise you and give thanks for the perfect expression of love in sending your Son. For your story of redemption that promised this Prince of Peace. A history that spoke of him, making known to us the mystery of your will. Your purpose and plan in Christ that in the fullness of time you would redeem all of creation in Christ. And so we celebrate the already of this redemption and the coming of your Son. And we look forward with great anticipation of what's to come. Lord, cause us to be in awe of him, to be witnesses to the glory of your Son, expressing the wonder of the news that you have raised Jesus, exalting him as our leader who made a way for us at the cross, our risen Savior who changes our hearts, granting repentance and faith so that we might rightly see him and know your forgiveness. We give thanks and we ask these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.